Hello and welcome to Dragon Bites, the paediatric podcast aimed at paediatric trainees or anyone interested in child health. I'm Asim, one of the paediatric trainees here in Wales and one of the presenters for Dragon Bites. This week we've got our second half of the talk on HIE from Kellen Kenny, one of the presenters of Dragon Bites, and Dr. Elisa Smith, one of the consultant neonatologists at the University Hospital of Wales. Anyway, let's get started. So if the heart's had an ischemic hit, it's going to not pump yeah. as well as it's supposed to do. So you often see hypotension. And so many of those babies end up on inotropes for a period until everything recovers again. And most organs are extremely good at recovering following HIE. It's just a brain. But once the damage is there, it's harder to recover. And that's why we do the cooling treatment. So yeah, from cardiovascular point of view, I usually say keep your mean blood pressure at least 45 or above um, because these are term babies. So central access. Central access, yeah, Yeah. definitely. Um, It's just going to make it so much easier to monitor um, your blood pressure. And And kind of for the baby with sampling. Again, sampling, yeah. Um, With cool babies, often the peripheries aren't very well perfused. So, yeah, you definitely want to get good samples um, from the lines, definitely. So, yeah, we covered respiratory, cardiovascular. Neuro with the pain. Yeah, neuro and pain. Obviously, we've they're on the CFM yeah. treating the seizures. Another thing that, mm. that for, as a trainee for myself, and it's more the nurses educate you, yeah, is the okay. subcutaneous back necrosis yes. and the importance yeah. of turning, turning them. them. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And there's different types of mats available as well. So subcutaneous fat necrosis, we don't really know why it happens, but it's sort of um, yeah, crystallization of the fat underneath the skin. It's a very painful condition, and it can also lead to hypercalcemia. Um, it might be inherent to the hypoxic ischemic insult rather than due to cooling. So the case report started appearing when we started cooling babies, but we wondered if that was due to the fact that we're just better at sort of looking after these babies and giving them full intensive care and we're actually realising what's happening. It's often dependent area. So if they've been lying on their back a lot, you do see sort of over their shoulders, sometimes armpits. Um, so yeah, that's why it's really important and nurses keep turning the baby, but make sure they stay in contact with the mats, but keep checking their skin regularly. And you said about the calcium, so correcting electrolytes. Yes. So monitoring bloods and things throughout yeah. cooling. Um, again, there's a lot of confusion about the sort of cooling bloods and yeah. what to do, but it's just important to regularly monitor their bloods. I often say your admission bloods, do a full set of bloods um, so, and include all your renal function, mm. your liver function. It's not something we often do straight Routine, away no. because we always say what reflects the mother's sort of results but on the other hand you want something to monitor because some of these babies actually go into proper renal failure so knowing your starting point of creatinine you can then see with the next point like has it gone worse or has it gone better um same for all your liver enzymes it can help you to decide when the insult actually happened because the insult could have happened three or four hours before the baby was born or even a day before the baby was born we don't always know when the insult happened so if you see all the enzymes and all the organs sort of in the first 12 hours peaking and then get better, it probably means that the insult was around at time of birth. I've seen, I remember two cases, I think, where everything had normalised. Like we never saw any peaks, but the baby behaved like a severe HIE. That then made us decide that this insult was probably one or two days ago. It's, it's happened antenatal and everything soon normalised. Like by the time that baby was born, we could still see the brain effects, like the baby was encephalopathic. But all the other organs had sort of semi-recovered. So there was something that happened days before the birth. So it does help you, and especially in medical legal cases, this sometimes becomes a problem 
knowing when the insult happened. Like, could something have been recognised? Could that baby yeah. have been delivered earlier? So that's why it's so important to do bloods regularly. So I usually say sort of at birth and on 6, 12, 24 hours in the first 24 hours. And I'm probably daily or dependent on the situation. I mean, if you're dealing with a baby that's seizing, you're probably going to be rechecking your calcium and your sugars and your magnesiums a lot more often because you want to make sure they're all in the normal range. Um, and do you do a cranial ultrasound as well as parts? Yeah, so again, if we think about differential diagnosis, there are other things that can cause you to be encephalopathic at birth. So it will help you to just do a baseline head scan in the first sort of six hours in a period where you're deciding to call to make sure there's not a massive IVH. I mean, it's unusual in term babies, but they can have massive bleeds, especially babies with sort of underlying clotting problems, um, a stroke can mimic encephalopathy quite difficult to see on an ultrasound but you may get some indication that there's some unequal brightness or some asymmetry i've seen babies with big sort of intracranial bleeds not intraventricular but either parenchymal or subduals that have led to a midline shift on the ultrasound so again it can give you some clues about what's going on if it's just baseline, sort of basic HIE, you're probably not going to see a huge amount on that early scan. Um, but the one thing that's really important to look at is resistance index. So you're going to be looking at the Doppler flows in the anterior cerebral artery. And the resistance index within that often goes down um, in babies with HIE because they've completely sort of lost the control in their brain. Um, and um, sometimes the cardiac output isn't great. Um, because of the cardiac insult so you see really low doppler velocities in the brain as well and keep doing that throughout cooling so i often say the pre sort of in that first six hours when you're deciding to cool just to make sure there's nothing else going on and i would do it at sort of 24 48 72 hours and after cooling just to monitor progress and often what you see throughout cooling the brain will become a little bit adenitis so the scans will become a little bit fuzzy that's sort of 24 one you might see a bit of fuzziness it's quite tricky to sort of get a clear picture that's often due to edema or the ventricles just completely shut you can't see them anymore because of the edema you can see in in severe babies the main region that gets affected is the basal ganglia thalamine and they can start to look quite bright that takes some time so it's often day two day three or even after cooling and it's often that's also the areas they're going to be looking at when the baby eventually gets an MRI scan but definitely the baby with severe HE have managed to see the exact same changes that we saw on MRI on cranial ultrasound as well. You mentioned as well the RI, the yes, index. Yeah. That is a prognostic factor. It does it, help as well. in prognostication. Yeah. I mean, there's lots of things we can take into consideration when we're thinking about these babies' prognosis, but RI is one. So, And the one that's currently the only one that's sort of predictive is the one post-cooling. So yeah. if you've still got a very low resistance index, sort of below 0.55, after you've been rewarmed, that is sort of puts you in a really high risk group of babies for having a poor outcome, unfortunately. Um, um, so the baby's been cold. Yep. Um, and what's the maximum time they're cold for? Yeah, so we normally say 72 hours because that's what all the trials did. Um, occasionally during rewarming, we see some problems, mm. and then we may decide to either hold the temperature or recool again. And the two problems we see during rewarming are either hypotension, and uh, because we are warming the baby up, so sometimes it just yeah take a bit hypertensive, yeah. and they may need a fluid bolus, and that gets itself sorted. Or seizures. So particularly babies who had a lot of seizures during cooling often don't cope very well with rewarming. So those babies we may cool a little bit longer or just hold sort of 
warming them up a bit more until we're under control and then we can do the warming. But a standard treatment will be three days. And actually, people have now trialed in humans, so in babies, five days of cooling. And there's actually a trial called the Longer Deeper Cooling Trial, where they thought, well, let's try cooling deeper. It might do even better. better. And so they cooled down to 32 degrees and for five days. So they have four treatment groups in that trial. The standard one that we do, 33 and a half for 72 hours. Then one group that was cooled to 32 degrees, one group that was cooled for five days, but at 33 and a half. And then the fourth group had both, so cooled longer and deeper. And actually, for all those groups, the mortality was higher, and the highest mortality was in that last group that was called to 32 for five days. Okay. So that trial was actually halted before because they recruited the, yeah. all their patients because of the clear safety concerns. They haven't published, as far as I'm aware, they haven't published their long-term data because obviously if those babies that survived, they would have followed up for two years. Mm. I don't think I've seen the data published yet, so that'll be interesting to, to look see at. Something but to from come. that trial, I mean, if you've got higher mortality, you can't, you can't continue. continue. So it looks like we've probably chosen and extrapolate it from all the animal data the correct the correct time time and temperature yeah um yeah and so we're now rewarming the baby yeah and what we've mentioned about the seizures and the hypertension yeah. are there any other things that we need to be doing is there a desired time that the baby needs to be rewarmed, to be rewarmed. Yeah. yeah so as um we start cooling we do it very quick rewarming is slow so and it's something really important to tell to the parents as well because they get just want that cuddle. cooling for three days and now you can start rewarming your baby and they think all oh, will be fine in two hours but actually we want to rewarm slowly to avoid all the problems we've just been describing so we say about half a degree an hour but that's going to take you seven to eight hours before that baby's back into the sort of 37 degrees then we take the cooling mat away, but often those babies struggle to maintain the temperature. So again, I teach the nurses a lot to just continue monitoring the rectal temperature once the baby's rewarmed, because often they do struggle a bit to maintain the temperature. But it's a time when we often start to wean down the ventilation then if they're ventilated, wean their sedation and sort of work towards extubation, starting feeds normalizing. Uh, and sort of normalising the baby and see what they're like um, following cooling. And some babies, obviously, who have been cooled go on to have MRIs. Yeah. Um, so following the rewarming, the establishing of feeds, um, usually we do it within the first week to two weeks. Yeah, correct. So it's quite important to, to not leave it too long mm. because some of the signs disappear after a while. Like if you've got very severe changes, they're going to stay there. But there's some crucial signs that, You'll only see sort of from day five onwards, so we usually say day five to ten is quite a nice period to do it. BAPAM have actually recently published a new cooling sort of framework, okay. um, which has a whole long new section on MRI and a sort of sequences to do as well. And um, they've suggested doing something called MR spectroscopy, looking at sort of the lactate ratios in your brain and things like that, which again will help with prognosis because that's all the parents want to know at this stage now isn't it they've managed the baby survived they've gone through cooling what will their baby be like when they grow up and obviously that is the one million dollar question exactly it's a really difficult one to answer yeah. and that's what mri does help so if you've got very significant changes on mri i'm going to have that conversation with the parents that talks about cerebral palsy neurodevelopmental problems as that baby grows up maybe ongoing seizures um we do get babies that go home on anti-epileptics mm. because they continue to seize despite their cooling treatment for example or the seizure free for a bit but then the seizures return because obviously if there's damage in the brain that is one of the 
signs your gaps as they grow up. And what I think is brilliant is that some charities now like Bobath mm. will offer input from yeah. the get-go. Yeah, indeed. If indeed. these babies have been yeah. pulled, there's a referral system for parents to do online yeah. or yourselves as, as um, consultants, which I think is great. Yeah. It, I think it, it must give parents some kind of hope and I just know so, that they've got yeah. some something in yeah. place. I mean, it's, it's one of those things, isn't it, where you're giving them this awful worst case scenario really when a baby's born your baby we think your baby's got brain damage we're going to give them some treatment in the hope that we can stop some of that damage happening but the damage that's there it's you done. can't really reverse yeah. um, so it's one of the hardest things i think for the parents as well so yeah giving building in that hope um that really high vigilance so the first two years they have been really regularly monitored in clinic they'll have physio input ot input i mean not all hospitals have ot where I work, for example, we've been fighting for years to get some OT input and we're still failing. But yeah, there's many units who've got a lot of support for these babies. They come back to clinic um, and often the parents need that first clinic appointment to sort of almost debrief about everything mm. that they've gone through because it's only when they go home they start to realise everything they've gone through. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's really important to stay closely in touch with these families and follow them up until they're two and some actually when it becomes very obvious they've got a lot of damage there we think they're going to have cerebral palsy we do include yeah boba therapy for example um, especially whales are really lucky to have um, the local um, therapy here but our physios are really closely involved and then we often if I think that is the case they often involve the community pediatric team yeah. early on because they've got the whole MDC there then um, and get to know them early and get to know the parents yeah, and they've got the, the support family. network there exactly yeah, a child is very different to the baby. Yeah, that yeah, very home. true, very true. Yeah, and um, just to bring this really interesting talk, it was fascinating. I've really enjoyed <laughs> um, to a close. Is that what can we look out for in the future? I know we've spoken about the the, the recent trial, about the yeah. five day cooling, which has been halted, and the looking at the lactose on the MRI. Is there anything new yeah. else on the horizon? The week there's week? quite a few sort of hot topics oh, in amazing. cooling. Um, so the difficult one is what do we do with some of the babies that we think they may benefit from cooling, but we're not sure yet. So that's your late preterm baby so those between 34 and sort of 36 weeks or we feel like well they've had a clear HIE insult should I give them cooling but obviously there's some risk with that because those babies are still preterm so are they potentially at risk of IVH for example if I start cooling them so that data isn't out there yet there's an RCT running at the moment in the states but are very slow to recruit because the numbers of preterm babies with HIE <laughs> are not as big as the term baby. Mm. So I think that is slow to recruit, but hopefully in the next five or ten years we'll know the answer to that one. And we may start to include babies down to 34 weeks, for example. Another big group is the babies with mild HIE. So that's Sarnat stage one. The mild HIE babies, what do we do with those? Mm. And uh, we just don't know at the moment. We know that their outcome is worse if we don't give them cooling. What we don't know is... Can we improve that by giving them cooling? Or are we making it worse by, by cooling? By cooling them. Yeah. We just don't know at this stage. Um, so again, there's no formal RCTs published yet. There's case sort of cohort studies where they've compared babies that with mild HIE that were cold compared to term babies that were cold, but you can't really compare the two. You can't compare a mild with a moderate HIE because their outcomes are different. So I think there's a lot of work and a lot of trials starting in that field definitely so 
watch this space watch this space yeah. definitely definitely and then on top of that there's all the sort of yes we've got cooling treatment but are there any other treatments that are going to help these babies because it's still a devastating prognosis having to give to the parents so despite cooling it's still about a 50% poor outcome there's still about 25% of babies with um sort of yeah a neurodevelopmental problem as they grow up and there's still mortality as well so so there's lots and lots and lots on the horizon, um, ranging from stem cells, which are hot, whichever yeah. condition you look at, Across the um, board. to sort of add-on uh, pharmacological treatment. So melatonin has been spoken about, um, EPO has been mm-hmm. spoken about. There's a big trial running in Europe um, with allopurinol called the Albino trial, which I think they're recruiting really well. And that is giving allopurinol as a sort of free radical scavenger. Okay. And those treatments you could give really early on. You could literally ask the baby's born, or you could even give it to the mother when you think there's something oh, happening. And it's just two injections, so much easier compared to three days of cooling, cool, for yeah. example. So all these sort of new treatments are being trialed in addition to um, cooling. So no one would ever now go back and just trial those on their own. The final one that I've myself been really involved in is the Xenon trial, mm. uh, where um, an anesthetic gas called xenon was added to the cooling treatment um again we're still analyzing all the data for that one um so yeah watch this space but it's quite a difficult treatment to give because they obviously need to be on a ventilator because xenon is really rare yeah, gas. Yeah. it's quite expensive so you have to have a special the ventilator that recirculates the xenon all the time so it's not a straightforward um treatment to do but yeah lots of exciting things out there on the horizon Oh, I look forward to yes. that. Yes, well. yeah, well, I'm sure in your careers you'll, you'll see one of them at least. That's I hope what I really so. hope that we'll know, we'll have more clarity. Oh, Elisa, thank you so much for joining That's us. That's okay. Hopefully, we can hear more from Elisa soon on yes. other neurodevelopmental topics and neonatal medicine. So, thank you all for listening. And I just wanted to say thank you to Kellen and Elisa for recording that for us. That was really helpful and hopefully we've all learnt a little bit more about HIE. Join us again next week for another episode of Dragon Bites.